Steve. August Folge to the Irish Mythology Podcast, where this week you'll hear about how Viking raids shaped Irish mythology. I'm Stephanie Hearney. And we'll also hear about the misinterpretation of a poem in the 9th century AD that could have led to the creation of a goddess. I'm Mark Sohishkin. And of course, we have a tale to tell. Hot on the heels of a love story where one of the protagonists gets turned into a fly by their lover's first wife, we have an account of how a mysterious stranger gets a goddess pregnant and immediately does a runner. And how their child turns out to be a bit of an asshole. Of course, we're talking about Brez, his mother Era, and his father, the Fomorian prince, Alaha. Now, if you are a regular listener to the show, you will know that Brez is a bit of a shady character and that he's been removed from the kingship of the two a day. And we covered this in episodes seven, eight and ten, if you want to listen back. But this works as a standalone. The two a day are basically the old pagan gods of Ireland and being their king effectively makes you the high king of the island. Brez gains that position after fighting bravely in the first battle of Maitura. Yeah, he he proves himself as a warrior, but being a great warrior does not mean he's going to be a great leader. So Brez turns out to be arrogant and mean. He forces his fellow gods to work from morning to night and he levies so many taxes on them that they have nothing left for themselves. No surprise then that they eventually overthrow him, but they don't banish him. They let him stick around. Which, under the circumstances, is quite generous, considering he's been sending some of the taxes he's collected overseas to a shadowy figure called Balor. And there's another twist in the tale. Balor belongs to a race of supernatural beings called the Fomorians, and it turns out Brez's father does too. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, we take up the story from there in today's episode with Brez going to his mother to ask about his ancestry so he can go looking for his absent dad. So this is our adaptation of the story. It's based on parts of the 9th century saga, the Second Battle of Moitura, and we'll go into more detail on that later in the show, along with what we added to the story and why we added it. And we'll chat a bit about Brez, Era and the Sinister Formorians and put a bit of a Viking historical context on the saga. But first, here's Stephanie with our adaptation, Brez, Era and the Formorians. It was a long time ago, my son, when we were here before with the Nevid. I used to come here to sit on the warm sand and watch the waves approach and retreat. The men of our kind, the two a day, were useless then. Reckless and full of themselves. It was calming to be there away from it all, watching the sea and the birds and the odd scuttling crab. I rarely saw a human being, much less another god, but one day a boat approached the shore. Era points out to sea. The boat shone silver. At first I thought it was a trick of the eye, but as it got closer, I saw it was real, and that not only did the boat shine, so too did the man who sailed upon it. He had golden yellow hair down to his shoulders, and a cloak with bands of gold thread around it 
with a brooch to match. Two shining silver spears crossed his back and he carried a gold-hilted sword. I was mesmerised. I had never seen a being as beautiful. He was surely a god, though I had never laid eyes on him before and I thought I knew all the gods. When he stepped off the boat, he looked me in the eye and asked straight out, shall we spend an hour making love? Brez's face contorts in horror. Mum! Eris smirks. Well, you asked how I met your father. Brez shakes his head. I don't need that kind of detail. I just need to know what he is like and where I can find him. Lord Balor said I should go to the northwest. I don't trust this Balor, Eero replies. When your father was leaving, he gave me a gold ring so that you could identify yourself to him. I never saw him again. Era reaches behind her ear and produces a gold ring. She takes Brez's hand and slides it onto his middle finger. It fits perfectly. He said I was only to give it to someone that it fit. Brez stares at the ring. When your father left, Era continues, he sailed towards the northeast. I watched him until he was out of sight. We should go in that direction. Brez looks at his mother. We? I will go with you, she replies. I would like to see him. I know he will want to see me too. Then we should go immediately and prepare for this journey, says Brez. The following morning, Era and Brez take seven horses and seven hounds and set out on their quest. They spend seven years wandering the northern third of Ireland, searching for someone who both knows the location and is willing to take them to the lands of the Formore. For most of that time, they meet no one who has heard of the Formorian race or Balor or Alaha, Brez's father. Finally, at a fish market in a small rundown port on the north coast, their questions elicit a reaction from those they approach. Almost every soul they encounter immediately walks away when they mention the Formor. The few who do talk warn them not to pursue their mission for it will only lead to calamity. The place reeks of fish, pickled, smoked, rotting, boiled and every other kind bar fresh. I have never seen a fishing port without fresh fish before. Era is beginning to have misgivings, but Brez is undeterred. I can't go back there now, not to be subject to either Nuada or the Dagda. I was the leader of them all. Era nods in resignation. I won't abandon you, son. I just feel ill at ease. 
These people here are my people. I need to know why they are fearful. I can't abandon them either. Brez puts his hand on his mother's shoulder. My father, that man you described, would hardly instill this fear. Perhaps there are factions. You said he called himself the King of the Formore, and Balor calls himself King too. We can get to the bottom of this if we find my father. The man I met was kind and gentle. I don't believe he would harm my people, but... Era looks around at the traders and fishermen. I have abandoned them. They don't even know who I am. Or me, Brez interjects. I ruled upon them for seven years. Now I keep hearing the names Angus and Lou. Upstart nobodies. Did you ever hear of... Your father promised great things for you, says Era, interrupting Brez's rant. He knew I would bear you. He said you should be called Brez because it means beautiful among his people. He said that every beautiful thing that is seen in Ireland, both plain and fortress, ale and candle, woman and man and horse, will be judged in relation to you. And when people see a beautiful thing, they will say it is a Brez. Brez scowls. And instead, they can only talk about those. Much to Era's relief, Brez is interrupted when an old fisherman with matted grey hair and bad posture taps him on the back. I hear you're looking for Elaha McDelva. I can take you to him for the fee of, say, two, two of those horses you have with you and two of the hounds. Two horses and two hounds? Brez asks, not masking his outrage. That's the price. Take it or leave it, replies the old fisherman. Era leans over and whispers in Brez's ear. This is the only offer we've had and I don't think we'll get another. Brez swallows his pride and agrees to the price with an unenthusiastic nod. They spend three days sailing northwards on rough seas on a boat laden with the only fresh fish they'd seen since arriving in Ireland's far north. When they arrive at what seems to be a mountainous island, Brez and Era disembark with five horses and five hounds. The port is much like the one they departed from, but easier on the eye. The buildings aren't as run down and the traders' stalls look brighter than the dreary efforts they left behind. It is easier on the nose too. There only seems to be fresh fish on sale here and alongside it, samphire, carrageen moss, kelp, and seaweed oil. Brez and Era mount two horses and with the rest of their animal contingent behind, they follow the directions the fisherman gave them. The road is steep, but it is well paved and the villages and towns on their route all look as well kept as the port they arrived at. Villagers flash friendly smiles and wave as they pass through. Everyone looks happy and well-fed, says Brez. 
I knew my father could not be a tyrant. But where does this prosperity come from? Era asks. The land looks to be of poor quality and I haven't seen any farms. I know, marvellous, isn't it? Brez replies. Era doesn't emphasise the point that Brez seems to have missed. The higher they climb on the mountain road, the scarcer settlements become. Soon they notice that there are no more bushes, trees or shrubs. No green land at all. And the dreary grey rock they have just become accustomed to is gradually replaced by black marble. The road narrows until they can no longer ride two abreast. The gradient of their path decreases and it eventually weaves through a dark mountain pass with towering walls taller than Brez and Era have ever seen. It comes to a point where the tops of the walls are so high above them they are out of sight and the road begins to descend. And after what seems like an eternity, they see an end to the pass, but it appears to be a dead end. As Brez and Era get closer to the foreboding rock face, they realise that it is a door. It has no handles or any means of alerting those inside to their presence, but its outline is unmistakable. Then. Two figures who look like they are carved out of the rock walls of the pass step out and block their route. Halt, says one of the beings as he changes shape, becoming less like a black marble statue and more like a man, but with the head of a goat with grey and black speckled fur. This area is off limits, says the other, who now resembles a goat standing on its hind legs with the same grey and black speckled fur, but with the head of a man. Brez gets down from his horse. I am Brez Makalaha, son of Laha Macdalba. I seek an audience with him. The being with the head of a man laughs hysterically and the being with the head of a goat bleats so hard that his head shakes. Sure, sure, says the one with a man's head. Tell me another one. Before Brez can respond, the goat-headed man taps the other on the shoulder and points beyond Brez and Era. Your horses and hounds, are they fast? Asks the man-headed goat. The fastest you've ever seen, Brez replies. Would you race them? Asks the guard. That's why we're here. Error quickly interjects to give our horses and hounds a real test. The two beings look at each other and the goat-headed one nods. They each turn their back to opposite sides of the pass, transform into rock and become part of the mountain once more. The great rock double door opens. Beyond the door, Brez and Era find a landscape that is starkly different to what they have come from. Rolling hills and green grass stretch as far as the eye can see and the only road looks like it is paved with gold. 
After a further day of travel, they come upon a great plain, and upon that plain there is a festival in progress. Various games are taking place. A game that resembles hurling, but with sharpened blades on the edge of each hurl so that every challenge for the puck carries a risk of dismemberment. Several heads and other appendages litter the field as players, seemingly without fear, pursue the win. A game where giants see how far they can toss trunks from what must be the tallest trees in the world. Games where the object is to throw an axe or a spear or a rock the size of a small hill. Brez, Era, and their party of hounds and horses continue past these events until they reach a fair. Bright, colourful stalls dispense food and drinks that seem to cause some of the drinkers to immediately pass out unconscious. Finally, they come upon an area where various kinds of racing are taking place. Brez enters the five hounds and the five horses in ten different races. Each animal wins its race easily, and these victories gain Brez and Era a pass to the part of the plain where the great assembly is held. When Brez and Era enter the restricted area, they see a crowd gathered in front of a podium upon which nine kings sit on nine thrones. That's him, Era says to Brez, with a hint of excitement in her voice. There, on the throne in the middle. Brez is starry-eyed. He gazes upon the man with flowing golden hair and adornments of gold and silver, just as Era had described. You're the spit of him, Era adds. Gods, he's gorgeous, says Brez. All of the kings are magnificent in their own way, but none is so pleasant to gaze on as the man who fathered Brez. They approach the podium just as Alaha calls for volunteers for a contest of sword play. Brez immediately puts up his hand. The gold ring his mother gave him gleams on his middle finger. Alaha looks at Brez. You there! The one with the pleasant face, where did you get that ring, he asks. It was given to me by my mother, who was gifted it by my father, Brez replies. Your name is Brez, Alaha inquires. It is, Brez replies. Era beside Brez looks like she is bursting with joy. It does my heart good to behold you, says Alaha. I always hoped you would come and find me. How is your mother? Era's head drops to hide her embarrassment. This is her, Brez points to Era. Don't you recognise the mother of your child? Era keeps her head down. Let me see, says Alaha. Fair one, do lift your chin so I can see your face. Era, slightly flushed, raises her head. Ah, yes, exclaims Alaha. Please accept my apologies. I was mesmerised by the sight of our son. Don't be worried, says Era. I'm only here to see the boy reunited with his father.
Alaha pauses for a second, then he flashes a pearly white smile and says, You'll both be my guests at dinner, of course. Of course, Rez replies, beaming with pride. Era just nods silently. You know, Era, whispers Laha, I thought about returning to Ireland to see you, but I knew I wouldn't be able to leave you again and my people need me here. Era forces a smile. That's nice of you to say, but I'm hardly worth the effort. Nonsense, Laha replies, already turning his attention to the feast that his servants have laid out on the big black marble table. He carves a large slice of meat from a roasted joint and turns to Brez. Tell me, son, why did you lose the throne? I was first of their leaders to ever demand tribute. They called it injustice and called me arrogant, Brez replies. He was inexperienced, Era interjects. And was it unjust? Did you leave them enough for themselves to live off? Asks Allah, ignoring Era's interjection. I thought they could have worked harder. I misjudged their abilities, Brez replies. Ah, you have to look after your own, says Allah. You need them to keep you in power to fight your enemies. I sent tribute to Balor, Brez objects. He told me he would send warriors if I was ever deposed. Will you raise your armies? Will you help me take back my throne? Era looks horrified. Brez, no, that's not why we're... Elaha raises his hand, instantly silencing Era. Your mother is right, son. You shouldn't take back by injustice what you lost through injustice. Era looks annoyed at being cut off, but relieved that Elaha is in agreement but Alaha continues. You did have a deal with Balor. I'll take you to him. We'll get him to honour it. A broad smile spreads across Brez's face. Era shoots a look at Alaha that's as sharp as a blade forged by Gobnu. What? Are, are you serious? No, I won't be party to this. Alaha rests his hand on Eris and sends a shiver up her spine. You don't have to be. You can stay here. Eris shakes her head. No, I'm leaving. Brez tilts his head to one side. Mother, don't be silly. It's wonderful here. Alaha raises his hand once more. Your mother can leave if she wishes, Brez. He turns and looks at Era. It's just, for some reason, a lot of people get lost trying to find their way out. Era begins to sob. Brez rests his hand on her shoulder. Don't worry, mother. We'll be back soon. When I win the throne back, we can all live together at Tara. Laha rests his hand on Brez's shoulder. Come, son. 
Let's prepare for the journey to Tory Island. That escalated quickly. Yeah, that's a bit of an understatement. I mentioned earlier that we made some additions to the story and there are two reasons for this. Firstly, Era's role in the original is to tell Brez about his origins and lead him to his father. Well, I wouldn't pass the Bechdel test, I'll tell you that oh, much. Certainly not. Um, especially since after going with Brez to find his father, she just vanishes from the saga, never to be seen again. Now, the oldest full text of the story can be dated to the 16th century, but it is believed to be compiled from mostly 9th century material. However, it is also believed that there were additions to the story in the interim period. This makes it notoriously hard to definitively date, and we'll come back to that in a bit in the text, and we've mostly used the Elizabeth Gray 1986 translation as our source. But you'll find the part about Era meeting Allah and Brez's conception in sections 15 to 22. And the parts where Brez and Era go to find Allah are in sections 42 to 50. In the original, the narrator relates the story of how Brez was conceived to the reader. But in our version, we had Era tell Brez the story and immediately they head off on this quest to find his father. So in keeping with the tradition of multiple authors adding to the story over the centuries, we described the journey itself, which doesn't appear in any of the texts. To do this, we draw on various sources from mythology and folklore. For example, the human-goat hybrids come from descriptions of Fomorians in the 11th century text Lerna Hudra, and in folklore, the Fomorians have a reputation for stealing livestock. The theft of agricultural produce is also employed in the Second Battle of Maitura itself. During Brez's brief rule over the two a day, he sends tribute to Balor of the Fomorians, leaving the people of Ireland and even the gods without enough food for themselves. So on the journey to find Alaha, Brez and Era see where all that produce is going, although Brez seems kind of oblivious to what's going on or even apathetic, which brings us to Brez himself. So Brez has featured in a lot of the stories we've told on the podcast so far, but we haven't really discussed him the way we've discussed the Dagda, the Morrigan and some of the other gods. He's been the main villain of the first part of the saga. He's described as beautiful but unjust, mean and arrogant. When he's king and the other gods visit, they, and this is the quote, never leave with the smell of ale on their breath. Criminal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So we've talked about the importance of hospitality in previous episodes, and this is really the ultimate burn. Anyone who heard that would immediately think that this is a being of really poor character, even without hearing about all of the other injustices he's inflicted upon his fellow gods. Yeah, he, he demands tribute from the gods, which is kind of like levying taxes. And that's never happened to him before. Even worse, he makes them work. Ugh. So, it's Gross. Not, and it's not just any old work, it's the hardest, dirtiest, menial work, which would have been seen as a grave insult to the noble classes, never mind the gods. Now, the Dagda, who is the supreme father and the master of sorcery, who controls the seasons and is renowned for his hospitality, is reduced to digging ditches and building fortifications for Brez from, from morning to night. So he should have joined a union. Yeah. <laughs> anyway... 
Uh, he also has Akma, the eloquent orator, military tactician and inventor of the Oum alphabet out collecting firewood. But he isn't always portrayed as a villain in Irish mythology. In fact, one poem in the Metrical Dinchenkos has only good things to say about him. For anyone new to the show, the Metrical Dinchenkos are basically poems about the lore of places and place names. So the passage you're talking about is from the one on Carnwinet, yeah? Yeah, and this paints a very different picture of Brez. It describes him as being brave, kindly and noble, as well as being a master of love spells. And even though the poem lists Brez's ancestors, there's no mention of him or his uh, father, Elaha, being Formorian. You know, I always thought it was strange that the fact he's half Formorian is such a big deal in the Second Battle of Maitura, because the Dagda, Lu and Agma are half Formorian as well. Yeah, in some of these medieval lineages, uh, the Dagda and Akma are his half-brothers and Alaha appears as the father of them all. In this saga, though, the noticeable thing is the contrast between Brez and Lu. They're really characterised as opposite ends of the spectrum of godliness and nobility, Lu being the epitome of everything good and Brez representing everything bad. So we're going to be covering a lot of ground with Lou in the coming weeks, but it's worth mentioning one interesting difference between them. Brez has a Formorian father and a two-a-day mother. Lou, on the other hand, has a two-a-day father and a Formorian mother. Now, Mark Williams mentions this in his book, Ireland's Immortals, A History of the Gods and Irish Myth. And he says that this juxtaposition is a patriarchal message that only paternal blood affects one's character. It's an interesting take, but the Lara Gawla Heron, which is the Book of Invasions, which was compiled in the 11th century, says that both Akma and the Dagda were also sons of Alaha, and they aren't portrayed or portrayed negatively. But as we were saying, there's a lot of confusion and contradiction about family trees across different works of Irish mythology. Now we'll come back to Alaha in a bit, but first we want to talk about Era. Era does have a very limited role in Irish mythology. She appears here, fulfills her role as Brez's mother and then disappears. She then appears in the story of how Ireland is taken from the two a day by the Milesians, which can be found in the 11th century manuscript, uh, The Book of Invasions. In this story, the Milesians are the ancestors of the Gaels, who are the Celtic speaking people of Ireland. Her role here is just to give her blessing to the Milesian claim to sovereignty and then once again disappear. But this story is definitely a medieval invention and there really aren't any genuine pre-medieval sources for a goddess called Era. Now, just a quick explainer on the name. In Old Irish, it's Eru, but we've been using the modern Irish for her name here, Era. Her name basically means abundant land. Uh, Era is, for those who aren't familiar with Irish language, uh, Era is the Irish language name for the island of Ireland and one of the two official names for the Irish state, the other being the English version Ireland. For this reason, she has been interpreted as a sovereignty goddess and a personification for the land. But the Sovereignty Goddess Association is a 17th century interpretation of medieval texts that most likely either invented her or based her on a flawed understanding of earlier stories. In the aforementioned story, she has two sisters, 
Banva and Fola. The three sisters get the Milesians to promise to name the island after them in return for the granting of sovereignty. The names Banva and Fola are really only used as poetic names for Ireland in the same way as, you know, Albion is used for England. And this is probably only because of the Milesian promise in the story. In Ireland's Immortals, Mark Williams casts doubt on the authenticity of all three goddesses. Yeah, apparently the name Banva is a loan word from Proto-Welsh, meaning plain of low hills. We're not 100% sure about the meaning of Fola, but it could be related to the modern Irish word Fol, meaning uh, division or portion, like the division of land. Although modern spellings of the name usually put a fada, that's an accent, over the O, which would alter the meaning, we're not really sure if the insertion of the fada was late medieval or early modern guesswork on the spelling or genuine. Now, I do have a theory on where the medieval interpretation of Era as a Goddess comes from, which is related to the topic of a recent patrons bonus episode over on Patreon. Oh, yeah. Before we forget, this week's patron shout out goes to Brody Hodgins and Victoria Ann Pearson. Thanks to the two of you and to all our patrons, in fact, for supporting our work. Yeah, we couldn't do it without you. And we'll have info on how you can become a patron at the end of the show. Anyway, in the bonus episode, I was talking about how the original source material for most of our mythology was probably in poetic form. Much like the way in Norse mythology, the prose Edda is influenced by the earlier poetic Edda, which in turn is influenced by an earlier oral tradition. Yeah, the poetic Edda can be abstract and vague in its use of language, but the prose Edda takes very literal interpretations of the various stories in its prose retelling of them. One of the things you'll see in the poetic version is kenning. They're sort of compound poetic metaphors. Uh, So one example of this would be battle sweat, meaning blood in the Anglo-Saxon saga Beowulf. So I think the same thing is happening here. At some stage, a medieval writer comes across a poem that's been passed down for centuries and it says Brez is the son of Era or something along those lines. But if that's Kenning, it just means that he's a native of Ireland or more precisely born of the abundant land or even that he was loyal to Ireland. So then all the other medieval writers latched onto it and a legend was born. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, but look, even if that is the case, at least we got some good stories out of it. Yeah, and the interactions between Era and Brez, Era and Alaha and Brez and Alaha in the second Battle of Moitura also leave a lot of room for interpretation, which makes this part of the story fun to adapt. In our adaptation, you heard Era tell Brez about how she met his father. There's a bit more to the encounter in the original text, but we figured she wouldn't tell him everything. Right after Alaha asks Era if he will have an hour of lovemaking with her, she responds, I certainly have not made a tryst with you. His response seems fairly innocuous at first. He just says, come without the trysting. And seemingly that's enough to persuade her, but I'm intrigued by the way he goes from request to persuasion so quickly. I really feel like his request of an hour of lovemaking is the Irish mythology equivalent of sliding into someone's DMs in 2021 (laughs) and saying, you know, you down. Uh, But yeah, it's hard to be really sure what's happening there. 
but it was most likely taboo for a woman to agree to have sex with a stranger with no prior arrangement. Um, and we talked about all the legally recognized types of marriage and sexual union in the last episode. But in short, this was most likely a dalliance that was outside of the law. Now, she is in awe of his beauty, but it does seem that she's concerned about this lack of trysting. And his response is just to tell her not to worry about it. Actually, there's an interesting contrast between this encounter and one involving the Dagda later on in the saga. Actually, two encounters involving the Dagda. Yeah, the Dagda gets around a bit. Um, and we'll talk, we'll talk a bit more about that when we cover the story in a few weeks. But throughout the second battle of Maitura, there are contrasting character references given to protagonists and antagonists. Another thing that seems kind of innocuous in the original text is the bit where Alaha tells Brez he won't help him regain his throne through injustice. This is often interpreted as being a noble and principled refusal. But right after that, he tells him to go to Balor. So far from being this nice guy, good Fomorian figure, Alaha is really a player of games. Yeah, he'd almost remind you of Loki, the Norse trickster god. Oh, definitely. I think Loki would be a bit more subtle and say something like, I couldn't possibly help you with something that immoral. That's the kind of terrible thing that bad giant Balor would do. You know, Balor, he lives over on Tory Island. Awful character. That's very much like Loki, the Marvel Loki there, just the way that quote. Yeah, yeah. no, it's always what I think of. Um, But the other thing you'll see when we tell the story of the actual battle is when it comes to the fighting, Alaha is right there alongside Brez and Balor leading his armies against the two a day. Yeah, whatever his attributes are in other sources from Irish mythology, he's certainly not a principled opponent of injustice here. He's he's no social justice warrior. But uh, (laughs) Oh my God, what a bad (laughs) pun. Sorry. That doesn't mean that there's no such thing as a good Fomorian. And we'll meet some, not all Fomorians, sorry. Some of my best friends are Fomorians. (laughs) But the Alaha of the second battle of Maitura is not one of these good Fomorians. Do you know, we should actually come back to this idea of tricksters in mythology at some stage, because if you think about it, all the gods are tricksters. Oh, yeah. It, and it isn't the tricking that is important in discerning whether they are good or bad, but I guess what the purpose of the trick is. We should definitely do, do that. Um, it's kind of the old does the end justify the means argument, you know. When it comes to the Fomorians, both the means and ends are nefarious. There's no doubt that they're the villains of this saga. You know, they pillage the land, they subvert the political structures that are divinely bestowed upon Ireland by the gods. And ultimately, they attempt to conquer Ireland. There are a lot of interpretations as to what they represent, and most of them seem plausible enough, even though at face value they might contradict each other. This is one of the complications of trying to interpret a text that was compiled over the course of several centuries. Whatever the Formorians represented in pre-Christian Ireland is completely obscured beneath layers of historical context that were added over hundreds of years. In a way, it's kind of like carrying out an archaeological excavation on a site that was in use for thousands of years. One thing we can definitively say is that the portrayal of the Fomorians in the Second Battle of Maitura is heavily influenced by Norse Vikings. 
the Fermorian raids where they attack and loot the property of the two-a-day bears similarities to the Viking raids on Ireland of the 9th century. Even when they are looting and pillaging, they find allies among the Gaelic-Irish nobility who forge alliances with them to fight against rival Tua. In the surviving text, the battle itself most likely reflects the Battle of Clontarf, which occurred in the 11th century. In this battle, the Munster chieftain Brian Brew, who had been declared High King of Ireland, fought against an alliance that was made up of the Irish of Leinster, um, the Norse Vikings of the Kingdom of Dublin, and a Viking army led by Sigurd, Earl of Orkney, which was part of a political union called the Kingdom of the Isles. The reason we are certain about this connection is that the author of the saga basically tells us straight out. Uh, the Fomorians are traditionally associated with Tory Island off the coast of Donegal and other islands in the west and north of Ireland. But the Second Battle of Moitura describes Balor as King of the Hebrides, which was also part of the Kingdom of the Isles. It goes on to say that Balor, with the help of another Fomorian king, Indach MacDaidaunan, uh, gathered the forces of Lachlan westward to Ireland. Now, Lachlan was the old Irish name for Scandinavia or Norway, so there's no big mystery. The Kingdom of the Isles was comprised of island groups off the coast of Scotland, as well as the Isle of Man. And for the Irish who weren't allied to the Norse, it was just a source of strife. Its importance is illustrated by a passage from a book called The Isles by Norman Davies, which was very kindly sent to me by my cousin, Faz Foster. Great, great chap. Anyway, sorry. sorry <laughs> anyway, Davies writes, The Northmen from Denmark tended to move south against Germany and later against eastern England. Those from Norway sailed west. The western route proved the most rewarding of all and it was helped by a chain of landfalls that acted as stepping stones across the ocean. Basically, the Norse Vikings island hopped from the Faroes to Shetland to Orkney and then to the Hebrides and the Isle of Man and used these as staging posts to raid Ireland. They found the islands so useful that they eventually colonised them, setting up permanent bases for their attacks on Ireland. So no wonder the authors who added to the Second Battle of Maitura from the 9th to 11th centuries drew analogies between the Formorians and the Norse enemy. But if we want to find some clues as to what the Formorians meant to Irish pagans before the triumph of Christianity, we have to dig deeper and excavate below the layers of medieval historical context. Comparisons are often drawn in academia between the Second Battle of Maitura and other primordial battles between gods in Indo-European mythologies like the war between the Greek gods of Olympus and the Titans or the war between the Azir and the Vanir in Norse mythology. If that is the case, it's interesting that there is no surviving account of the Azir and Vanir war in Norse mythology. There are only mentions of it in other stories. And there is little in the way of authentic accounts of what happens after the Battle of Maitura. So if you were tempted, you might do a fairly plausible looking reconstruction of the two by basing them on each other, taking cultural and geographic differences into account. But of course, that is complicated by additions to the stories of both mythologies in the medieval period. There is what is possibly an interesting clue to in the text as to what the Fomorians might have represented. This involves the name of the Fomorian High King, 
Indek MacDaydonan, and he tends to get overlooked mainly because Balor is such an, an imposing presence, but he's really Balor's boss. So it's kind of like the, the Vader-Palpatine arrangement, you know, or to quote Qui-Gon Jinn, there's always a bigger fish. We will never get through one episode without <laughs> a Star Wars reference. Uh, anyway, Mark Williams uh, pointed out the similarity between his name, which is spelled D-O-M-N-A-N-N, or A-N-N, I suppose, yeah. the English alphabet, uh, but pronounced Donan, with a name that was used for the two-a-day in the 10th century. Uh, Tuaday Donan in Old Irish, which became Tuaday Donan in Middle Irish before being corrupted into the common name for them today, Tuaday Danan. He puts this forward as evidence that there was never a goddess called Danu in Irish myth, which we've talked about in previous episodes of the show. But he doesn't really pursue what the meaning of Daydonan might be. Now, just a health warning or caveat on this theory because giant health warning well uh, not not giant i wouldn't say a medium-sized one <laughs> healthy health warning anyway i'm not a linguist but and i'm not fluent in old or middle irish in fact my modern irish irish is only middling but there is a word that has recently fallen out of use in the irish language it last appears in the dictionary in O'Donnell's 1977 Folklore Gaelga and it looks very similar to the name of the Fomorian king. That word is Donan, spelled D-O-M-H-N-A-F-O-D-A-N, which means little world or microcosm. When preceded by the word day, god or gods here, it would have to be changed to the genitive case, aka the Tishilginadoc, but that just involves putting an I before the end. Yeah, it's a shame that word has fallen out of use. The current official word for microcosm in Irish is microcosma, but I much prefer donon. Um, but yeah, son of the god of the little world is a very interesting name when you put it in the context of Irish myth and folklore. But if this theory is correct, it sheds a whole new light on the identity of the Fomorians and raises a lot of questions about the two-a-day, but in later folklore, the little folk are their fairies, you know, the good people, and some of whom are mischievous but helpful, so benevolent tricksters, while others are out to do harm, and they're malevolent tricksters. You know, this reminds me of when we went to see Mancha and Magan doing that show, Aranagasim. Yeah, yeah, he, he was talking about the fairies and the holes in the bread, um, doesn't he? For, yeah. for anyone that doesn't know, um, Arana Gazim means bread and butter, basically in Irish. Yeah, it was a really, really interesting show. It was kind of a performance, a talk and like a demonstration of how to make bread and butter all rolled into one. It was great, actually. I was like a show yeah. involving bread. Fantastic. Yeah, it was really lovely. Um, but yeah, he was talking about how the Irish language expresses ideas about the spaces in between things on a subatomic level yeah like quantum theory and all of that but it, it, it would put you in mind of that all right there are a lot of threads still to untangle here like the connection between the people of the she who are not always small with the formorians and the two a day and then the various classes of fairy folk in later folklore but we'll keep trying to unravel the mystery of the formorians over the coming weeks as we progress through the rest of the saga of the Second Battle of Maitura. 
But that's all we have time for today. Now we'll be back next week to see Lou organising resistance to the Fomorians. But if you want more Irish mythology podcast content right now, check out our Patreon. From as little as three euro a month, you can get story scripts and story-only audio as well as early access to the next episode. Oh, and there's also bonus content, which includes the Patreon-exclusive episode from last week that I mentioned earlier, which you can get from five euro a month. That's at patreon.com forward slash Irish Mythology Podcast. And... If you're on social media, maybe give us a follow on Twitter at Irish Mythology P on Facebook at Irish Mythology Podcast on Instagram at Irish Mythology and online at Irish Mythology Podcast.ie. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or another platform that includes ratings and you like the show, or even if you don't, do us a favor anyway and give us a five star rating. It really helps us reach a wider audience. And it would really help if you could share these episodes with others. Send them to your Amanda. And you know, I was just thinking. Next time you're thinking of sending someone a message that says, you up? Why don't you send them a message? Uh, uh, take a leaf out of Alaha's book and say, how would you feel about an hour of lovemaking? <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. Well, make sure you have a tryst. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time on Irish Mythology Podcast. Sloan. Sloan. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written. Presented and produced by Marcus O'Hishkin and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license. That doesn't sound anything like the theme No, it does not. <clears throat>